Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to the Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. I am Danielle Tate, a maternal fetal medicine specialist and the maternal medical director of TIPQC. Joining us today for a second time is Dr. Owen Phillips. She is an obstetrician gynecologist and a reproductive geneticist at Regional One Health and a professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee. And for anyone who has not yet listened to the first part of our discussion, I encourage that you do so as well. Dr. Phillips was so gracious to share with us a lot of valuable information on prenatal screening and diagnostic testing. And so happy that she could join us again to dive a little bit more into the other areas of her specialty and her specific research areas that she's done in the past. Next, Dr. Phillips, I would love to pick your brain and talk to you about genetic carrier screening. National guidance also recommends that all patients receive information about genetic carrier screening. Can you explain to us what exactly is genetic carrier screening? Sure. So we talked in our last session about chromosome abnormalities. What carrier screening was designed to detect is whether or not an individual who may or may not have a family history of any particular single gene defect, and usually does not because we are looking at actual rare disorders, could have a blood test. And that that blood test would define whether or not they may be a carrier of uh, some of the more common single gene defects. And what's currently recommended is that all individuals be offered screening for cystic fibrosis, for spinal muscular atrophy type 1, and for hemoglobinopathies like sickle cell or thalassemia. Then an individual should have enough of a family history taken by their practitioner's office to know whether or not there's a family history of developmental delay or autism, and then that individual should also be screened for fragile X. So there are certain conditions that everyone should be screened for while they're pregnant. Are there any specific set of panels or testing that should be done based on a family history or personal history? Until recently, The patient's ethnicity guided our decision-making. And so an individual who was of African descent on that individual would just get a hemoglobinopathy screen for, say, sickle cell or thalassemia. And if an individual was of Caucasian descent, that individual would instead be offered just cystic fibrosis screening. Individuals of Ashkenazic Jewish heritage are a special category in that they are more likely 
than other ethnicities to be carriers of certain disorders. And so panels have been created for those individuals. And some of the panels have seven mutations that they screen for. Other panels have as many as 30 or 32. Then the next step in the screening process was to recognize that many of us don't any longer know our ethnicity and that the technology has advanced such that it's just as cheap for the laboratory to screen for one or two diseases as it is to screen for 20 or 30. And so panels have been created by laboratories. Doctors' offices get marketed for these expanded carrier screenings. And so there are many different approaches to screening that are out there. And ACOG has endorsed actually all of them and said, just choose a method and stick with it and offer screening for uh, single gene defects according to one of these methodologies. Are you seeing any limitations to the options based on insurance coverage? Yes. You know, and for a while, we made the assumption in my own clinic at Regional One Health, where we see majority 10 care patients, that as we were following the guidance of ACOG and offering cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, and hemoglobinopathy screening for all patients that we've recently been advised that TenCare wants a preauthorization for cystic fibrosis and spinal muscular atrophy. That was a surprise to us. We uh, sort of thought that as long as ACOG said you should do it, that we were good. Now, private insurance companies, I probably vary by way of the company. I do know that, as I explained, expanded carrier screening, not just looking at at pan-ethnic screening of CF, spinal muscular atrophy, and hemoglobinopathy screening, but these larger panels of anywhere from 20 to 30 to 120, one laboratory has screenings of 500 different disorders, that insurance companies are far less likely to cover those. So it, again, is that insurance essentially hasn't caught up with the recommendations and probably every insurance company is different. And that's great to know because as we both know, patients will often do their own research or they may hear from others they know about certain testing and be interested, but it's definitely great to know what they will have to pay and what the insurance will cover as they go into testing. Some laboratories are so anxious to build support among a physician base in a community that they recognize that if a sample is sent to them, especially if the patient is is a 10-care patient, that they'll run it and not charge because they can't charge and they'll just kind of eat that cost. On the other hand, if a patient has private insurance, they certainly should be informed about maybe needing to pay part of it out of pocket. There are a lot of stories of patients having been had a test drawn or a screen drawn that they got a bill for for close to $1,000 that they were not anticipating. Very true. With the positive carrier screening tests, what should we, the providers, know in regards to what the test means and how to approach the delivery of information and counseling with the patient? 
the report should come back that and and be very clear that the patient is a carrier, say, of cystic fibrosis and that the variant, we used to use the word mutation, but the buzzword now is variant that they carry and they define that. What we know is that before a child can be affected with that disorder, the partner has to also be a carrier. And so this is another step in the process that if the individual is a carrier, the next step is that the partner should be tested. And that from there, if the partner's negative, that's the end of the story, sort of. I'll get to that in a second. If the partner carries a mutation within the same gene that causes the same disease, then the pregnancy is at risk. And that risk for most of these disorders, being autosomal recessive, is now up to 25% or one in four. Now, there are a couple of caveats with that, is that when you are screening or testing the gene in the partner, none of these screens or tests are 100%. And so they may have a test that's, say, 90%, meaning that 10% of the mutations that an individual may carry are not picked up. So there should be some mathematical calculation that's called residual risk so that you know your patient's a carrier, the test shows that the partner is not, but he could be, and so the math should qualify then that you're not completely out of the woods. It's possible that this fetus they could be affected. Unfortunately, there would be nothing further to do for testing, but the patient should be aware that, again, no test in medicine is 100%. So that's one of the caveats. And then the other is maybe even before, if you have time and you're counseling your patient concerning screening, to inform them that if they're positive, then it would be the next step to have the partner tested. The partner may not have insurance or may have insurance that's not going to cover it. Uh, these tests can be focused and but still expensive. And so that would be the next step. And oftentimes, this is sort of where things just fall off. The patient's aware she's a carrier. Partner can't get tested, won't get tested, no longer in the picture, a uh, number of things. But this is where, again, you would remind your patient that this genetic information is hers. She needs to know this. Maybe some other family members who are considering having children need to know that there's this carrying, this particular genetic disease is running in the family. And that if she's got a new partner or even the same one and considering another pregnancy, certainly they ought to consider having some sort of testing on him at some point. We spoke before about diagnostic genetic testing, so amniocentesis or CVS. Does that have any role or value in the world of carrier screening? Yes, that again would be the ultimate test. All we've done is to find a couple who's at risk for having a child with the given disorder. And so again, cystic fibrosis we talk about because it's the most common disorder among Caucasians. Sickle cell disease obviously is much more common in individuals of African descent. And spinal muscular atrophy is common and devastating. And that's why it is actually recommended for screen to be screened for as well. But if both parents have been determined to be carriers, 
Those mutations have been identified or variants have been identified. And then testing by way of amniocentesis or chorionic villus sampling can ascertain whether or not the fetus is actually affected. And so that would be the ultimate step. We'll again encounter couples who know they have the chance of having a child with a disorder, that the risk then, if they're both carriers, is as high as 25%, but they elect not to have testing. And then either newborn screening might pick it up or the pediatrician might test for it when the baby's born. And it's my understanding that that newborn screen or testing with the pediatricians is part of the state mandate? Yes. Every state's different, though, in what disorders are tested for in the newborn screen. But cystic fibrosis is on the list. Uh, Spinal muscular atrophy is on the list, as well as other disorders in general that have potential for serious problems and that there are treatments for that can affect the long-term outcome of a child if the disease is diagnosed early. Now, Dr. Phillips, I just want to switch just a little bit. I've seen some recent studies come out talking about expanding on the ability of cell-free DNA or non-invasive prenatal screening for other disorders. I've seen information coming out about RH testing, about testing for certain antigens that are important on the mother's side for antibody affecting pregnancy. Can you speak to this sort of expansion of the use of cell-free DNA? So cell-free DNA comes from the placenta. It was a real surprise back in the 80s and early 90s when an individual named Dennis Lowe in China defined the fact that as much as 10% of the free DNA or nucleic acids floating around in a maternal circulation were actually fetal and that they most likely came from the placenta as the cells on the placental plate disintegrated through normal growth and released these products, DNA, that would then get into the maternal circulation. And so the challenge has been for the folks doing research with cell-free DNA is to see what other applications there might be out there other than defining imbalances in chromosomes. And they are where, I'd like to say we, but I'm not in the research field anymore, are really making a ton of progress. And I'm so glad you asked about the type of progress that's out there. So it's easy to determine the gene concerning RH, that RH or is truly a big D antigen, and that if those cells get into the maternal circulation, then an antibody response can occur and cause problems, the neonatal hemolytic disease of the newborn that we understand as RH disease for that pregnancy and that baby. But cell-free DNA, again, can be tested for that big D antigen. And so if the mother is RH negative, then, and the fetus is RH positive, then testing cell-free DNA for that D antigen or the, quote, RH factor, if it's present, it comes from the fetus. And so it's important then to say, be able to say, look, here we have a mom who's negative, and now we know that the fetus is positive. 
and that this mom now needs Rogam at 28 weeks, and she certainly will need it at birth. Currently, we give it Rogam at 28 weeks empirically, not knowing whether or not the fetus is positive or negative. But this would give us an opportunity to say, look, it's really positive, and let's give it. This is the standard practice in England. They no longer empirically give 28-week Rogam. They wait for cell-free DNA to say whether or not the fetus appears to be RH positive and give the Rogam to, to that mom. The problem in the United States is that there is are variants within that D gene. And in general, African-Americans are much more likely to have a variant that is not easy to screen for by way of cell-free DNA. And so it is more likely that a mom who's Black and RH negative might have a negative cell-free DNA when indeed the baby is positive. And therefore, the opportunity might be missed to give Rogam and prevent the antibody formation in the mom. So I don't think we're going to be moving far on using the cell-free technology for detection and management of patients who are RH negative. You asked now about other disorders, and it is just a matter of time before we will be able to draw a blood sample and analyze the cell-free DNA for single genes. It's already been done when it comes to autosomal dominant mutations, but it's very close in proximity in my mind that we will be talking about analyzing single genes similarly. But you have to imagine what that's going to take. You won't be able to say it's the presence or absence of a gene like RH. And that's because it's going to be a matter of doses, right? So if you don't carry the sickle cell gene, then there's no cell-free DNA in your system. But if you're a carrier, there's one dose. And if the fetus is a carrier, the mom has a dose and the fetus has a dose. So somehow you're going to have to quantify the amount of gene. And then we learn that the partner is also a carrier. So the fetus may be normal, negative, normal genes, or may be a carrier or may be affected. So now somebody's going to have to come up with the technology, and this is what they're working on, to be able to establish dosage. You've got one gene that's normal, one gene that's abnormal, two genes that are normal, and some way through some quantification methods on discriminate between normal heterozygous carrier and homozygous affected. But they're close. They're getting really close. I tell you, when I started my training, I would have never guessed that we would be here. But with the way technology is moving in all fields, I'm not surprised we're seeing this advancement and an ability to get away from invasive procedures that could be harmful to the pregnancy. Yeah. What will it take to, for us to be completely satisfied with testing by way of cell-free DNA as opposed to getting a result from a CVS or an amniocentesis? But I think at some point, 
the opportunity to say that it appears to be unaffected by way of cell-free DNA is going to matter. It may be that if the screen finds that the fetus is likely homozygous, the patient is considering a pregnancy termination, for example, because of the devastating nature of the disorder. Many of these disorders are lethal, meaning that a baby will be born and die soon after, that they may have a confirmatory prenatal diagnostic test first. But who knows? I mean, at some point, the technology may be just as accurate. Very true. In the realm of those patients who do have a confirmed genetic disorder or genetic anomaly found on testing, in general, what should be our approach to counseling those patients with a confirmed diagnosis? Well, again, refrain from starting the conversation with, I've got bad news. As again, a lot of that conversation came out over counseling for Down syndrome. It's not necessarily bad news that you discover that your pregnancy has Down syndrome. We can say that's not necessarily the case if you inform a patient that her pregnancy has Tay-Sachs, for instance. Tay-Sachs is an enzyme disorder. Children are born normal. They start losing milestones at six months or so and are usually don't survive beyond three to four years of age, and there's just nothing that anybody can do about it. There are no treatments. There are no cures. It's truly just one of those awful kind of genetic disorders. But again, I would start any conversation or just practice having any conversation that would go, we've got the results of your test back, and this is what it shows. And then do your very best to explain exactly what the test shows. There are many individuals who may take this news and look at their family, look at their resources, consider their hopes and plans for the future, and decide that what's best for them is a pregnancy termination. There are just as many families who come to the table with, that's not what we will do, and we need more information to prepare for a special baby. Under that circumstance, even as I am a geneticist and I can give as much information as I know how to, I usually do go ahead and set them up with a geneticist at Lebanon, if they're in the Memphis area in particular, and let them be the ones to walk the couple through, the patient through what they should expect once this baby's born. And then that just sort of completes the wheel and the circle for couples who might be uh, dealing with special issues, such as lethal single-gene defects, and there are many. And there are usually a lot of online resources as well. Certainly now, Facebook probably has a support group of families with absolutely every type of disorder that could be out there. I have patients oftentimes come to me with the name of the specialist at University of Cincinnati, who knows more about this disorder than anybody or information such as that. And I welcome it because most of the time when you're getting down to the families of individuals who have genetic disease, they, they're smart. They know more about the disease many times than I do and, you know, are quite knowledgeable. And I welcome that. Absolutely. And I can imagine as well that there would be discussion about future pregnancies, just given everything that you've mentioned thus far. And I know that always in my field, 
is very important to talk about the next steps and the next pregnancies, regardless of the outcome of the current one, where we see the change. Well, it used to be just as simple as informing the couple of their recurrence risk to remind them that this is a recessive disorder and that they uh, did have a child with that disorder, but that their chance of having another in the next pregnancy is one in four again. It does, their odds don't change depending on whether or not they've had normal children or affected children in the past. But, and that was in general about all you could recommend for that couple to consider. But now there's probably not a disorder that can't be diagnostically tested for in the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis capacity. This requires that the couple see reproductive endocrinologists who would do IVF for a pregnancy, maybe not have another indication for IVF, just do it for this, and that they would then fertilize and have in their laboratory, let's say, 10 embryos. And each one of those embryos then could be tested for this single gene mutation. It requires that the mutation has been defined, that the laboratory that is doing the testing creates a probe for this specific disorder in this specific family, and that a single cell from that growing embryo then would be tested, such that if you had 10 healthy appearing embryos and all were tested, that you might find you have four that are affected with the disorder but six are either appear to be carriers or homozygous normal, and that it would be then those embryos that would be used for a future pregnancy. This sounds so space age in a lot of ways, but it is happening right here in Memphis and in any city that has a robust REI slash IVF process. It's part of what they do these days. It certainly does add to the cost of the IVF, which is already expensive. But for a couple not wanting to be in a situation where they're informed that the pregnancy is affected again and that their options are to continue or terminate, this doesn't look like it's the most outrageous, but it seems to be, oh, no, this is exactly what we'll do the next time to assure that our pregnancy will be a healthy one and that our baby will be a healthy one. I'm so glad we have that technology as an option for patients. And I hope that through our conversation, we're empowering people to get more information about what they can do to be prepared. In our last few minutes, I just want to spend some time speaking on the patients who themselves have genetic disorders and are now considering pregnancy or are pregnant. How should we as providers approach this situation? Well, of course, there are so many genetic disorders. But once again, just make sure that you are mindful of your conversation with that patient. I will never forget one of the first couples that I counseled as a fellow before I followed my own advice here. Nobody had given me this advice, but I learned from this couple. One member of the couple had a genetic hearing loss, and the other uh, had hearing loss that was the result of antibiotics as a child. And mutation analysis at the time found that he did not have a gene that predisposed to 
hearing loss. And so my response to this couple was essentially, like I said, don't ever do, good news. It appears that you should not have to be concerned about children with hearing loss. It looks like uh, we would expect normally hearing children. Well, you know what? That wasn't good news to them. They were not looking forward to having children who were hearing. They wanted children who had hearing loss because their culture was the deaf community. And so it's just a reminder as we encounter perhaps individuals who have a chondroplastic dwarfism or Marfan syndrome to be mindful that we don't know exactly what they want and how their identity is affected by their, their genetic disease. I think I would start out with asking permission to discuss genetic disease, genetic testing. If an individual is there for birth control, are they considering a pregnancy? And is it okay if we talk about the fact that you have neurofibromatosis and that there is a risk of you having a child with neurofibromatosis? Would you like more information about that? Are there any questions that I can answer for you or maybe resources I can guide you to? So it's, it's not so simple as just to jump in and say, I'm you know, looking at an individual who may have a dwarfing syndrome and make the assumption that her plan would either be not to have children or that her desire might be to have uh, normal height children. And so again, just be mindful. Thank you again, Dr. Phillips. I think that's a great place for us to end our discussion on mindfulness, which is a great one word summary of genetics as it's in the OB world. Again, I can't thank you enough for joining us today and sharing your expertise. And I'll say I am personally grateful that we have an expert such as yourself in the state of Tennessee helping our patients through what can be a very tough time in pregnancy. Well, thank you so much for letting me share some thoughts with you today. I do hope that people have gained some insight into the world of genetics and and learned something. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, presented by TipQC. TipQC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic, or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.